Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. We are in Revelation. We're in chapter 6. And uh, from this point forward, things get interesting. So we will look at that. While you're turning to Revelation chapter 6, I'm going to tell you, I guess it's kind of an embarrassing uh, moment of my life, but it was a necessary uh, moment I had to have to grow up in my thinking as a Christian. I can remember, um, I remember being a new Christian. This is probably the first two or three months that I was a believer. So please, when I say this, keep that in mind, okay? But I had not been a Christian very long at all, and I was praying one night, and I had this, well, I thought it was a great idea. I was, you know, I was like, you know, we need to pray, you know, Lord's Prayer, you know, pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and you know, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And, and, and I, I just, you know, I saw how people are struggling in this world. And, and here I am freshly saved. And I'm like, I've got it. And I said, Lord, I want you to save the devil. If we could just save the devil, we could fix this thing and everything be all right. <laughs> now, I meant well, I really did. But uh, you get the idea, right? I was, I was thinking, man, silver bullet, you know, if we can just, uh, if we can convert the enemy, the devil, then he'll quit, re- you know, wrecking everybody's lives, and then, then we can all turn to you, and boy, wouldn't it be great? But, you know, a little misguided, but I meant well. Uh, well, I share that to say this. We're going to look in Revelation 6 tonight, and uh, what we're going to find out is that Jesus opens the scroll that reveals the destiny of history, and we're going to look at six of the seals that are open. And then we're going to learn three questions that we need to answer for ourselves. But before we get to that, let me just set it up by saying that these seals on the scroll teach one major lesson. Uh, Christ is in control of history. That's the lesson. Good or bad, and history is marching toward the final judgment and the kingdom of God. It's going to happen. The opening of the seals is, is um, not something necessary future to us. It's the present activity of God uh, from the time he ascended to heaven to the time he returns and sets up his kingdom that will never end. And while the end may be uh, characterized by a lot of tragedies and unusual events, um, we will see here that there's things we need to be aware of as we march towards history and our destiny. Look, if you will, in um, Revelation 6. I've got a quote here I want to read first. Dennis Johnson says this. He says, The sense of anticipation raised by John's vision of the enthroned one and the Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll whets our appetite. In other words, Revelation 4 and 5. John is caught up to heaven and he sees Everyone worshiped God as creator because he made everything, okay? He made all, all of us. And then the lamb, he's the only one that's able to approach the throne, the only one who is worthy to take the scroll from the Father that is sealed, and he's the only one that can break open the seals. And so therefore, we worship 
Him, the Lamb of God, who was slain for the sins of the world, right? And by His blood, He purchased people for God. And so that whets our appetite. Hey, what's going to happen next? And uh, John has been summoned to heaven to see what's going to take place in the future. And according to Dennis Johnson, we infer that God's secret plan for history lies hidden in this sealed scroll. So when the Lamb takes the scroll from His hand and begins to break the seals, we look through John's eyes for answers to our questions. Usually our questions are, when, what, and how long? You know, like, when's this going to happen? And what, what, what is going to happen? And, and how long before the next thing happens? And that's what we're thinking. But instead of answering our questions, he says, the prolonged process of preparing to unroll the scroll presents a series of portraits that answer this question. And here's the question. Why, if this lion lamb, the lion of Judah, the lamb of God, why, if the lion lamb has conquered, does the world continue to be a place of evil, violence, and mis misery? Now think about that. That's a legitimate, honest question. If Christ is the lion of Judah and the lamb of God, and he's approached the throne, and he will one day rule the world in righteousness and truth, and his kingdom will never end. And if he's in heaven now by the Father, then why does the world continue to be a place of evil, violence, and misery? Why? What we're going to see tonight answers that question. The first of the six seals, there's seven, but six of them were in this chapter. The first of the seals is a white horse with a conqueror. Look, if you will, in Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. Now, let me read the, the next three more, and then we'll look at these together. The second seal, when he opened the second seal, he heard a second living creature say, Come! And then another uh, horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. And when he opened the third seal, <clears throat> I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there was a black horse, its rider held a set of scales in his hand. And then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. Wow. Now, I, um, I forgot this until this week. Um, when you study Revelation, in my opinion, one of the hardest uh, decisions as you go down this road is this first seal in Revelation 6, verse 1 and 2. Um, for instance, I just want you to feel my pain for a little bit. So I've got all these commentaries, and I was reading them. And 
this is a true story. So I read one, and it says this first seal with the white horse, the rider has a bowl and a crown, and he's a conqueror. It's Jesus. And later in the book, in chapter 19, he shows up on a white horse, and he's got a crown and a sword. It's Jesus. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then it gets better. Then I look at another commentary, and I look at it, and I read it, and it says this is not the same person as Jesus who's on the white horse with the sword in his mouth in Revelation 19, and the strange company that he brings, the second seal, um, uh, there's peace taken from the earth, and people slaughter one another. The third seal, there's famine. The fourth seal, there's death. No, that's not Jesus. That's the Antichrist. And I go, oh my goodness. Now, let that sink in for a minute, right? Just let it sink in. You're, you're looking at two different commentaries, very smart, godly men. They're looking at the same passage of Scripture. One says basically it's God. The other one basically says it's the devil. Wouldn't you associate Jesus with God and the Antichrist with the devil? And you're going, wow, this is not, is it green beans or green peas? No, 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 it's not that at all. We're talking, is it this over here or is it that over there? Um, so anyway, um, one uh, resource that I've been using, um, don't mind sharing a little bit of my secrets, but one resource I've been using is a book by Michael Kukendall. And uh, he is a professor at one of our Southern Baptist seminaries, the one in California, uh, Golden Gate, I believe. And um, he's written this book, Lion, Locust, and the Lamb. Uh, it's not a commentary. It's a reference book. Uh, what he does, he's been studying Revelation for years, and he has taught it for years. And since it's a very symbolic book full of all kinds of images and allusions and Old Testament references, he has compiled these through the years. And when he wants to understand them better, he will go to all of these uh, commentaries and then he will pull that into the mix and then he'll basically summarize here's what different people say but here's what it probably is based based on the evidence okay and so I kind of used his resource for these uh, these uh, four horses in the four first four seals of the scroll and this is two or three long paragraphs normally wouldn't read this much to you but on this one, I thought, I want to read this to you, so bear with me. Here's what he says about this uh, first uh, white horse with the rider that holds a bow and a crown and is a conqueror going out to conquer. Here's what he says. He says, there are two riders on white horses in Revelation reflecting the dualism of the image, okay? Implying that there's, they're used two different ways. In chapter 6, verse 2, the rider is evil, and he comes as a conqueror, bent on bringing war, bloodshed, persecution, and perhaps false prophecy on the earth. This horseman is presented in the first seal. The rider's identity is disputed, and you need to know that, okay? It's disputed. Several scholars understand the horseman as Christ. Uh, William Hendrickson, for example, he has seven arguments to support the view that it's Jesus. 
And this view can go back as far as Arrhenius in early church history. And several modern commentators continue to favor it. Uh, when you look at their reasons, the color is white, there's a crown, the rider is a conqueror. Um, it reminds you of chapter 1911, and it tips the scale in the favor of this must be Jesus. This understanding, he says, however, has more against it than for it. The other three horsemen are certainly evil, uh, causing people to slaughter one another, famine and death. And it appears better to see this first rider on the white horse as part of the same group. Okay? Thus, many scholars take the opposite approach, and they interpret the first rider as none other than the end-time Antichrist, underscoring the futurist view that these seals predict events that occur near the end of human history. The majority of commentators, however, recognize the evilness of this first rider, but without the specific end-time Antichrist tag. The, re the rider, like the other three horsemen, is a demonic being, not a human being. He is a demonic parody of Christ. Evil masquerading as good. This rider, therefore, represents a malevolent or satanic figure or force found throughout history, especially near the end, who in context with the other three horsemen combined to produce an evil, fearsome foursome. The bow is a negative image of the lust for power and conquest through war. The white reflects parity and emphasizes false purity, evil victory and conquest. The crown is parity as well, reflecting the desire for authority and power. Moreover, it's possible that the rider symbolizes false prophecy and spiritual persecution through deception and oppression. This is an appealing idea, but the images of military conquest, tyranny, and violence appear to take priority over it. His last statement, although some of these ideas are appealing, the images of military conquest, tyranny, and violence appear to take priority over it. Now you can see the dilemma, right? You get into Revelation, you start looking at all these symbols, and your head starts spinning. Uh, there are two instances in the Old Testament. Zechariah, a couple places in the book of Zechariah, and I believe once in the book of Ezekiel. Both prophecy books mention four types of horses. But in all of those cases, these horses represent you know, agents that God sends out to patrol the earth, merely to patrol the earth. Here in Revelation, it's more than that. They're not patrolling. They're, they're, they're a chain reaction of events that are happening in the world. Um, I, I do not think, the more I, I'm still wrestling with this, and I guess I will say that I reserve the right to perhaps change my mind if I keep looking at this and see more evidence, but I don't think this is Jesus. Uh, up until this point in Revelation, we know when Jesus is on the scene. In Revelation 1, the risen glorified Christ, and he's walking among the candlesticks, which are the seven churches there in Asia, okay? And then he has a word for his church in Revelation 2 and 3. Then in Revelation 4, there, there in heaven is a throne, and then here comes a lamb, right, who is Jesus, the lamb of God, from the tribe of Judah, the line of Judah, 
and he approaches the throne to take the scroll. And as he begins to open the seals to the scroll, I just don't believe that this first uh, seal is about him. I could be wrong on that, okay? Um, very good and godly men and great Bible scholars are, are dispute this issue, okay? Um, but here's the point that I don't want you to miss. Look at these four as a unit. Just like the first four seals go together, the trumpet judgments that we'll get to later in the book, the first four go together. Um, so when you look at all of that, that's why I say that. So let me, let me keep moving because I don't want to get stuck on this. I want us to take in the whole thing and then you can kind of turn it over in your mind and come to your own conclusion. But the second seal is a red horse and there's no peace on the earth. It's a red horse. The rider is allowed to take peace from the earth so that people slaughter one another and a large sword was given to him. That large sword was the kind of sword they would use in hand-to-hand -hand combat, okay? So it implies, it implies that there's civil unrest in the world where perhaps people that know each other are, are hurting one another and, and killing one another. There's absolutely no peace uh, on the earth. Um, when you uh, look at that, um, he, uh, Kukendall says the rider on a red horse represents the coming of war and horrific bloodshed, perhaps more specifically civil strife and or the persecution of believers. Remember that because it's going to come up here in a minute. Then the third seal, the black horse with a set of scales. It says there was a black horse. Its rider held, held a, a set of scales in his hand and he heard a voice among the four living creatures say a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but don't harm the oil and the wine. That, um, that image uh, speaks of famine. Uh, matter of fact, Kukendall says, the rider on a black horse represents the arrival of suffering and terror through poverty and famine, the resulting effects of war, uh, the results of the white horse uh, invading armies, conquering, and the red horse bloodshed, civil strife, now lead to sorrow, suffering, and mourning, and hunger, and the scarcity of goods, which leads to famine. And that's confirmed by the pair of scales in the rider's hand and the exorbitant prices for wheat and barley. Then you have the fourth seal, uh, the pale green horse, which is, uh, which, and its rider's name is Death, and Hades is following after him. And they're given authority over a fourth of the earth, um, now, don't think like a mathematician and say, well, which, which half of which hemisphere are we talking about, right? Like as if we're cutting the, the, the globe into four pieces and which piece is he going to take? Don't, don't necessarily think of it that way. Um, numbers are used symbolically in Revelation as well. I believe it shows that there's going to be a partial judgment, but not a full, complete, final judgment until we get later on into the storyline here. And so a fourth of the earth will be killed by sword, famine, plague, and notice it says, even by the wild animals of the earth. Boy, that's, that's not a way you want to go, is it? Uh, Kuh Kendall says, the rider on a pale horse represents the coming of violence and terror, death and judgment, and brings John's readers to the brink of the second coming. The Greek word plural 
has produced translations. In other words, the color of the horse has been translated as pale, pale green, deathly pale, sickly pale, pale colored, and ashen. The idea is pale is the color of a corpse or someone who is deathly sick. And the war, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts that are mentioned result in death. The writer's name is Death, and his companion is Hades. And Hades, if you're familiar with Hades in the Bible, it's the dwelling place of the dead. And so death and hell, if you will, are personified to indicate the ultimate conclusion to the four horsemen. Now, I want to keep moving here, and we'll, we'll take questions uh, at the end if you have them, and you may do, and uh, I'll do my best. Uh, but there's a lot I don't understand either. But the fifth seal... This one's important. In verse 9, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. Now notice it says slaughtered. Now if you go back to verse 4, under the second seal, the red horse and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. Remember that? And now, in the fifth seal, here are people who have been slaughtered. Why were they slaughtered? Because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? And so they were given, or they each were given, a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Um, as one pastor friend of mine told me one time, they have the spiritual gift that nobody wants. It's the gift of martyrdom, and you only get to use it once, Right? That's what's happened here. These, these believers were martyred because of their faith in Christ, because of the Word of God and their testimony. And so this fifth seal is the martyrs of the gospel crying out to God to judge the earth. And uh, um, as Ku Kendall says, does God answer their prayer in, in verse 11? Uh, absolutely He does. And you see it in the sixth seal. Okay, they're, they're crying out to God. He says, wait just a little longer. And then the sixth seal in verse 12, watch what happens. And then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb." Because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You know, when you read that statement there in verse 16 and 17, then you go, wow, 
the people of the world knew more than they ever would let on, didn't they? I mean, everything starts shaking and they realize this is it. And they realize that there is a God and He's on the throne and there's the wrath of the Lamb and the day has come. What are we going to do? Oh, what truth come out of their mouths. So this sixth seal is a violent earthquake. And I like what Ku Kendall said about this. He says, The great earthquake is a feature of cosmic imagery that refers to the dissolution of the world, ushering in the conclusion of history, the end time judgment, and the new heaven and the new earth. Well, let's cut to it. Here's what he says. He says it's significant that the word earthquake is found exactly seven times in Revelation. And you know seven is one of those popular trends in Revelation. Well, the earthquake is mentioned, the term earthquake, the word earthquake is mentioned exactly seven times in Revelation, beginning here in Revelation 6, 12, then in chapter 8, verse 5, twice in chapter 11, verse 13, and then in chapter 11, verse 19, and then twice in chapter 16, verse 18. And here's what he says about this. I thought this was interesting. The adjective great, you know, it's a great or a violent earthquake, is attached to four of these seven references. And seven is the number for completeness, and four is the number for full coverage. In other words, the whole earth. Furthermore, he says, John places every earthquake at the conclusion of a vision. Notice there are different visions. As, as, we, as we go through Revelation, I think sometimes what people miss there's two ways, mainly, of reading and interpreting Revelation, okay? And I'll share with you my view on that right now. Um, most people, when they read Revelation from chapter 1 to chapter 22, as they're reading it, they're seeing everything in a straight line. This happened first, next, second, third, fourth, fifth, and so they assume that what happens in chapter 6 has to happen before we get to chapter 16 or 18 or 20 or whatever. The other theory on reading Revelation is that's half right. If you're John, he wrote this book in the order that God gave it to him. God gave him a vision. He wrote that down. And then God gave him another vision. He wrote that down. And then he gave him another vision, and he wrote that down. But when you put these visions together, they recapitulate things, okay? They start here, and they go out toward the unknown. And you're like, wow, what's going on there? And then the next one starts here and goes a little bit further. And so each time, you get a little bit more information, and everything's more intense because you're getting toward the end. And so I, I, I'm of the persuasion that uh, when you read Revelation, you're going back and forth between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Uh, you'll see that as we go through. But here's what he says. He says, um, the, the earthquakes come at the conclusion of a vision, and the numerical symbolism prepares readers not to think of seven individual sequential spaced earthquakes, but one great earthquake repeated in these visions that recapitulate one final, last, great earthquake. And you'll see that as we go through the, the seals, the trumpets, 
and the bowls because they'll keep saying, and this much happened on the earth and this much happened to the earth. And you go, man, how much is left? Like we went from a whole number to a fraction. Now we're adding more fractions. And now we're adding more fractions. And each time they stack up, you're thinking, how much is left? And I don't necessarily read it that way. I think each vision is giving you more detail on the same events. But we'll, we'll, we'll see that, I think, as we go along. Well, with all that said, let's try to put a handle on this, okay? Uh, this is some heavy stuff. I could talk uh, about this for two more hours, and I probably wouldn't know any more than I know right now. <laughs> so so let's, let's kind of take a moment to get our breath and say, so what? Uh, why should this even matter to my life right now? What, what do I need to take away from this? And I, I would say I'm glad you asked. So here it is. Uh, first of all, I want to share a quote from you that a man in a previous church shared with me years ago. And uh, wow, what a gold nugget it is. He says, he says, Corey, did you know that when the gospel of, of Christ is preached, okay? He says, when the gospel of Christ is preached, it does three things wherever the gospel is preached. And I said, okay, what you're talking about? He goes, well, whenever the gospel is preached, it civilizes all. Okay, it civilizes all, it moralizes a few, and it saves some. And I thought, okay, can you explain that to me? He's like, well, yeah. When you think about, you know, we're talking today about the importance of law and order. You know, if somebody does something wrong, there ought to be consequences to it. I mean, God, God's, God's government, man's government might be mocked, but God's government is not mocked. God's government says whatever a man reap or whatever a man sows, guess what? That shall he also reap. Okay, that's God's government, and uh, that's the world we live in. Uh, what goes around comes around, and so when you break laws, there will be consequences, even if uh, it, even if it doesn't look like it. You know, you can look at somebody and go, "Well, that's wrong. They shouldn't do that. How come they're getting away with that?" Well, because there is. Uh, because Jesus rose from the dead and because there is more to this life than just this moment in time, because there is a resurrection from the dead, because there is an eternal judgment, yes, one day everyone will stand before God, everyone will be accountable for everything they've done. And so when the gospel is preached, and that's part of the gospel, understanding that Christ is risen from the dead and he's going to judge the living and the dead, that civilizes all. Oh, wow. And then it moralizes a few. It makes people go, well, I better act better. I better get my life straight. That doesn't mean they're saved. That just means they're more aware of you know, right and wrong and they're, they're trying to do something about it. But then the gospel saves some to those that are willing to repent of their ways and believe the good news about Jesus. So that's what he was saying. When the gospel goes out, it civilizes all, moralizes a few, and save some. And I thought, wow, what a way to think about this. And when you look at these six seals, and there is a seventh, but it doesn't come until chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, and we'll get to that when the time comes. But right here in the sixth seal is this violent earthquake. And what a picture of the end, because everything in creation goes sideways. The earth quakes, and as a result, the sun turns black, the moon turns to blood, the stars 
of heaven fall to the earth and the sky is split open and the mountain and the islands are moved from their place and all the people of the world, the, the, the kings and those in power, even to the common people, all of them go, the day has come. This is it. And they say, who is able to stand? Well, see, the Greek has two words for this idea of wrath. Thumus is a sudden boiling up of wrath, and then it subsides. It expresses the sudden burning of dry straw, which is furious for a moment, and then it's over. It's like a volcano. It erupts after being dormant for a long period of time. And that kind of wrath from God appears ten times in Revelation, but not here in chapter 6. The other word for wrath is orge, and it connotes not only an emotion of God, but God's abiding universal opposition to evil. It's used six times in Revelation, and, and, and two of them are right here in chapter 6, verse 16 and 17. The wrath of the Lamb, uh, the great day of wrath has come, verse 17. Now, what is the significance of the wrath involved in Revelation 6. Here's what Herschel Hobbes says. He says, One view holds that this is divine wrath or God's judgment in history upon those who were oppressing His people. Those holding this view insist that this final judgment doesn't come until Revelation 20. Therefore, the final judgment would be out of place at this point. But the other view sees this as a picture of the final judgment. Those holding to this view hold to the recapitalization theory that is from chapter 6 onward the same idea of judgment is presented but with each vision growing in intensity thus each of these visions of judgment is complete within itself each ending with the final judgment if this be true then the final judgment is properly placed at the end of chapter 6 as the climax of the opening of the first six seals and here's what Hobbes says. This latter view is the one I hold. The former view might be correct except for one thing, that word orge. Were this a temporal judgment, the word would have been thumus, a fierce judgment that subsides. But the wrath here is the universal abiding opposition of God to evil. And, and I would agree. Already here in Revelation 6, at the sixth seal, you're seeing the great day of wrath. And they tell you in verse 17, the great day of the wrath has come. and Who is able to stand? And you will see this as we develop the theme as we go through Revelation. Um, I, I really like Herschel Hobbes. Some of you have been around for a while. You'll know that he was Mr. Southern Baptist a generation ago. And uh, I really like Hobbes and I agree with his main view of Revelation. So here are three questions. Here's the practical part. Here's three questions. We've looked at the six of seven seals, as I told you at the beginning, and then also said that I'd give you three questions that you need to know the answers to. I'll take a moment to give you these three questions. Two of them are mentioned in the, in the, in the text, and the other one is implied. The first question is implied. Who is in control? Who is in control? You see... As we live our lives here on earth in this evil, fallen world, sometimes we're going to see things that we don't understand. And we're going to wonder, what in the world is going on? 
you know, what is going on in this chaotic, crazy world? Have people lost their minds? You know, what was up is now down. What was in is now inside out. I don't understand anymore. Nothing makes sense anymore. Well, the question is, who is in control? And make no mistake that from Revelation 5 to Revelation 6, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has approached the throne of God. Jesus is the only one worthy to take the scroll and he's the only one qualified to open its seals. And so he opens these seals to show you what's happening through history. And trust me, he's in complete control of the situation. And so the first question you need to know the answer to is who is in control? And I hope that you find comfort because today we see a lot of chaos and craziness going on in our country right now, right? And you might go, what in the world is going on? Well, who's in control? Man's not in control. God's ultimately in control. There's a second question, and that is, we're going to jump now to the very end of the chapter. There at the very end of Revelation 6, um, when this great day of wrath comes, everyone in the world says, who is able to stand? When we realize who is in control, and that is Jesus, then the next question is, who can stand? Because Paul told these Greek philosophers in Athens, you can read about it in Acts 17, that there is a sign that you need to pay attention to, that there is a man that will one day rule the world in righteousness, and he will judge everyone, and God has proven it by raising him from the dead. And when he said that, they went, ah, ah, they couldn't accept that. You know, they just, they couldn't accept the resurrection of the dead. But Paul is saying the fact that Jesus rose from the dead proves that he is God, that he is the Son of God, and that he will one day judge the world, and he will one day rule as king forever. So with that thought, who can stand? Well, it's my prayer tonight that, you know, anybody that's watching right now, if they've never took that first step to trust Jesus Christ, please realize that one of these days when the Lord comes back and, and the world is shaken by this violent earthquake, everybody's going to be asking the question, who can stand? And unless your feet is on the rock, you won't be able to stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And then the third question, and I put these out of order for a reason, but the third question, the final question we need to know the answer to is how long? Now, I don't know about you, um, how long is one of those questions that's been going through my brain for a while. I heard on the radio today, um, there was a survey, and they shared this on the radio today, that there was a survey taken in America I don't remember the numbers. Of, I just remember the stat. I don't remember how many people they surveyed, but they surveyed a lot of people about how they felt about COVID. And here was the, what they said on the radio. They said 18% of people are willing to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. And the 82%, they're over it. That's what it said. <laughs> and so uh, all of us are going, how much longer, how much longer, how much longer, well, imagine here in our text that we're reading tonight in Revelation 6, when you look at the fifth seal, 
were those that have been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony. They are gathered there under the altar, these souls are, in heaven, and they're crying out to the Lord, and they're saying, God, Lord, Jesus, you're the Holy One. How long until you judge the world? How long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Lord, how much longer? Well, I want to tell you something. You and I, I think, as Christians particularly, need to be reminded sometimes that justice may not always happen in this life, in this world. But I can 100% guarantee you that justice will happen in the age to come. In the age to come, when Christ comes, He will judge the world in righteousness. He will reward the righteous and He will judge the wicked and He will make everything right. So I guess I want to end with this tonight. Are you prepared for that great day of wrath. I don't know about you, but when uh, I was in high school and I heard our interim pastor, Brother Bob Elliott at the time, preach on the coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and the reality of eternal judgment, it got my attention. And it really made me evaluate my life. And I came to a conclusion that I didn't know what would happen to me. I, I didn't know what would happen, and I knew that I needed to make a decision. I needed to settle this issue, and I needed to have confidence that if I stand before God on the day of judgment, I can plead for mercy, and I'll receive it, because at some point in my life, I realized I needed Christ, and I asked Him to be my Lord and Savior. If you wait till that great day to do it, it's too late. It's like going into a court of law and telling the judge, oh, I'm sorry, I promise I'll never do it again, which has already been done now. It's when you come to your senses and you say, oh, Lord, forgive me. And so it's my prayer today that you will be prepared for that great day of wrath. Well, I'm going to close in prayer, and then I'll take just a a few moments to field any questions for those that are here if you have any i don't know if i can answer them but i'll try okay well let's pray father we come before you tonight thank you for your word lord despite all these details that we've looked at that are just kind of overwhelming all of the adjectives stack up all of the images just overpower our imagination lord help us not to miss the obvious and that is lord you are in control of history. And Lord, you're going to guide history toward its logical conclusion that one day, someday, there's going to be a payday called Judgment Day, the great day of wrath, when everyone will ask who can stand. It'll be a day when those that have been martyred for the faith will no longer have to say how much longer. Because, Lord, it'll be a day and a time that you come that you will reward the righteous and judge the wicked. And, Lord, ultimately you will rule and reign forever. Lord, prepare our hearts for that moment of truth. May we say yes to you now before it's everlasting too late.
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.